Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Never, ever, ever, ever stop your steroid medication without consulting your doctor. For a lot of you, you have to do some sort of step down weaning effect. If you just stop, you could absolutely have what's called an an adrenal crash, Mm -hmm. and we would never want you to have that. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Welcome to 2020, Less Stress Life listeners. I am so grateful that you're with me at the start of this new year, and we have some great stuff planned for you. This first quarter, we're kicking off into a variety of women's health topics. And men, if you are listening, don't worry, there's something there for you too. But with these episodes, we're looking forward to more giveaways of things like lab tests and and other things that the guests have. So I'm really excited about that. And next week, well, first of all, This week, you're in for a treat with Dr. Carrie Jones, who is the medical director of Dutch Test. She is just so fun to listen to. So I won't yap because we'll let her talk. But it seems like there's never been a better time to do more around the topic of women's health. So I have something in store for you next week. So if you're listening to this late, it's already out. You can fast forward to the next week's topic because we're coming out with an Alexa flash briefing. More about that. That's when you are talking to your little Alexa dot or app or echo or whatever it is in the morning in your car, on your phone on your device in your kitchen, and you ask her to give you a little newsflash and you'll get the newsflash about women's health from us. So next week, I'll tell you exactly how to access that, but make sure you are subscribed to the Less Stressed Life email list, which basically gives you show note updates every week. So you just go over to lessstresslife.com, click on subscribe, and you will be good to go. Now on to Carrie Jones. Okay, today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Dr. Carrie Jones. And before I get into her bio, if you don't follow Dr. Carrie Jones on Instagram, I often tell people she's the primary reason to be on Instagram. So Dr. Carrie Jones is an internationally recognized speaker, consultant, and educator on the topic of women's health and hormones. She graduated from the National University of Natural Medicine School of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon, where she completed her two-year residency in women's health, hormones, and endocrinology. 
Later, she graduated from the Grand Canyon University Master of Public Health program with a goal to do more international education. She was adjunct faculty for many years, teaching gynecology and advanced endocrinology and fertility, and has been medical director for two large integrative clinics in Portland. She is currently the medical director for Precision Analytical Incorporated, creators of the Dutch hormone test, which is such a great hormone test that we will talk about today. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much. Oh my gosh. I think you I think you read my bio the best anyone has ever read it all the oh, way through. What a compliment. I know. Thank you wait, so much. Wait a attention to detail. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So I saw Carrie recently at a yeah. conference that Dutch or dried urine tests for comprehensive hormones. Hope I got the analogy right. Uh, yep. or the acronym right, sorry. Um Correct. And the whole first day, I mean, it was really an intense. People say, how was that? I'm like, it was a little intense. Um, it was like 13 <laughs> hours the first day. Uh, it was a fest, as you had said. But we talked tons about there was so much emphasis on what was going on with cortisol and the HPA access. So I want to dive deep into talking about that. But first, we'll back up because hormones are a trendy topic. You do such a beautiful job of giving analogies and making things really relatable. So first of all, let's talk about the big picture. Because when people are like, oh, I think my hormones are off. Let's talk about how they can kind of look at that, how it's commonly measured to look at, like how are hormones commonly measured? What's different between the way if you go into your primary care provider's office and say, I'd like to check my hormones, what are they going to maybe do versus like, what is something like the Dutch test or another type of testing tell us? Absolutely, man. Those are such good questions because men and women are routinely going to the doctor saying, I feel like my hormones are off. And what's what struggles I struggle with, and I'm sure you do too, is that people will go in and they'll come out with something like their cholesterol, their red and white blood cell count, which is called a CBC, and what's called a metabolic panel. And they're like, oh, you're, and maybe, maybe, maybe they'll get one of their thyroid markers run, a, a TSH or thyroid stimulating hormone. And they're like, no, everything's normal. And I'm like, okay, this is useless. Like this, this tells me nothing. You know, I mean, if if you were really sick or you know, if you had liver failure, kidney failure, yeah, okay, this is going to tell me that. But for the average person who just is feeling hormonal, they're feeling tired, they're feeling burnt out, they're feeling PMS. What we need are the real hormones. We need to look at cortisol. We need to look at estradiol. We need to look at testosterone. We need to look at progesterone. We need to look at DHEA. We need to look at the full thyroid panel. Um, and we look at it for both men and women. But when we're when we're looking at blood work, the problem with blood work is you can absolutely get those markers, um, but you have to make sure that you test at the appropriate time of your cycle. So ladies, you want to test, if you've got a 28-ish day cycle, you want to test like day 19, 20, 21, because sometimes women go to the doctor, they have a two o'clock appointment, they get their blood drawn at 2.30, and then they bring it to their, you know, holistic practitioner, functional practitioner, and they're like, look at my hormones. And you're like, well, you, Tuesday at 2.30 doesn't really tell me much. I need to know, is, is it day 19, day 20, day 21? So timing is everything. And the other thing I often hear from more conventionally trained practitioners is they're like, well, women's hormones fluctuate, so it's not worth testing them. Like, that's true. They do fluctuate. But if we know the time in their cycle, then we can actually really see what's going on. Now, the other thing with blood testing is you have to be careful that they, they don't really look at pathways. And in the Dutch test, which, um, of course, is my favorite test, um, we it's a dried urine test. So we can look at all the hormones. I can look at your estrogen. And then I can tell you where it's going, which is the pathway, which a lot of men and women want to know. We want to know, why is my estrogen high? Why do I have PMS? Why do I have heavy periods? Why Maybe why do I have a history of breast cancer? Um, and one of the things we can look at is this pathway where I can go, oh, 
you really struggle to clear estrogen out of your liver, this particular pathway is blocked or slowed down or you have a genetic snip here. Um, so let's work to correct that. And then it will essentially, you know, drain the bathtub and drain the estrogen. So that's why I like the Dutch is it's just so much more comprehensive. So when people say I feel hormonal, I'm like, I got you. Not only do I, can I test your hormones, I can tell you where it's going. So I give you this big picture. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about the, the, the thing is, is I love that it's called precision analytical because like you said, Tuesday at two 30 doesn't tell you much, but if someone knows the right time, so there is a lot of effort that goes into taking that at the right time. Like what if someone has an irregular period? Yeah. And it depends how irregular. So some women um, will alternate. So some women will say um, every other month, I'm more like 35 days as opposed to 28 days. I'm like, great. Since you know that already, if you're tracking, then we will just collect accordingly. So instead of testing on day 19, 20, 21 of a 28 day cycle, you will bump it out for a 35 day cycle. Maybe you'll collect more like day 25, 26, 27. Same if it's a short cycle person. Let's say she says, I get my period every 21 days. Like you're going to collect sooner. No problem. Now where it gets really tricky are those perimenopausal women um, who say, I get my period every two weeks and then I'll skip four months. Like I have no idea what's going on. Or women who really struggle with, um, they've lost their period and they only get it a couple times a year. That's when it's really important to work with your functional practitioner to try to determine should you just collect at the part where you haven't had a because you haven't had a cycle in four months? Just go ahead and test. Maybe you're trying to get to the bottom of why you don't have a cycle. Is it age? Is it thyroid? Is it you know a nutrient deficiency? Is it PCOS? Is it you know is it some medication you're taking? Is it because you just got off the birth control pill? And maybe we're going to address those things first and then test. Or are we just going to you know? try to map it out as best we can and and hope for the best when it comes to testing. Because it's really the estrogen and the progesterone that get a little wonky when women are irregular, but the testosterone, the DHEA, the cortisol, the thyroid, you know, those markers um, are are not quite as uh, cycle-driven. Although thyroid's more cycle-driven than women think. Mm-hmm. Um, but thyroid's not tested on the Dutch test. But everything else, you know, your, your, your stress levels, your adrenals, like that's not necessarily cycle driven. Yeah, great point. So there's so much, even if you do take it at the wrong time, there is a lot of really great useful information. And the reason that we're trying to take it at a certain time is we're trying, that's what the reference ranges are built for because they're built for the time that's normal at that or the, the ranges that are normal at that time of a woman's cycle, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, and we'll see this a lot, right? Women will go get their estrogen drawn and they're maybe in the blood and it will be exponentially high. It'll be like, 250, 300, and they freak out and everyone freaks out. And then we do the math and I'm like, oh, actually you collected this on day 12. It's supposed to be that high on day 12. It's right before ovulation. So that's actually normal. Mm-hmm. You don't need to freak out. But if you were on day 20 or day two of your cycle with day number one being the first day of your period, um, then I would be like, wow, that's a little high. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Like now what's going on? Like now, now that I know where you are in your cycle, like day, day two, it should not be that high day 19. It should not be that high, but day 12, 13, that's probably fine. So one of the rumblings that was going on among colleagues when we were at the Dutch conference was that Mark kind of, I don't know what Mark's, I mean, he's the back end research guy and he'd been doing a ton of <laughs> research. Owner. Yeah. Owner. He'd been doing a bunch of work trying to figure out like, 
what's the best time to test for this? And, and how do we best test for this marker? And what are the ways that are most reliable? And really the vibe we were getting is that a lot of people are doing this work and really not sure what they're doing. Um, was kind of how in like test this and see, it was like a lot of experimentation and <laughs> you don't have to necessarily <laughs> comment on that, but that was kind of the feeling we got like in the big worldwide world of hormones. Um, if you're not really paying attention to when you're testing during the month, like you're not really doing that person that much service. And we we know that just because when when they're you know when our when our patients and clients go to someone who dabbles in hormones or maybe they don't do hormones at, you know other than occasionally that's not really what their thing is but they're like yeah sure I'll I'll test your hormones you know they feel that they get that experience of like I feel hormonal and the practitioner's like nah you're fine everything looks fine you're like no mm-hmm. yeah, <laughs> I feel terrible right. like you know like you either you either do hormones this is what I tell practitioners you kind of either have to do hormones. Or you don't because you can really screw it up. And no woman or man wants screwed up hormones. It, mm-hmm. it makes us feel a million times worse. And, and it can put us at risk for things. Yeah. That's, so that's that's kind of what I stress to people. Like this isn't this isn't something you, you just dabble in. Right. Sounds like a bumper sticker. No one wants screwed up hormones. We can all Nobody agree. wants screwed up hormones. No, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Bipartisan yeah. agreement. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about um, for people. There's a lot of health practitioners that listen to this podcast. So in the world of serum and blood, how do you measure hormones in a dried urine test? And how do we know that that's accurate? Yeah. So what, so actually a lot of research is saying that what we should do is use a machine called a mass spec, mass spectrometry. And so what, at the lab, we use um, what's called GCMS and then L- GCMSMS and LCMSMS. Now, the other option is immunoassay. So immunoassay is what's really common. You can get it in blood work. A lot of saliva companies use that. It's very cheap. It's very easy to start up. Unfortunately, it's not as sensitive and not as specific, but it does allow you to run like large volumes because you can just set up lots of immunoassay machines uh, uh, at a time. But what we're going for, what research is pointing to is that, well, like really we want to be sensitive and specific. And I have a really great example. A friend of mine was, um, uh, is a doctor in New York City, and he ran an estrogen on a man that was like 300 and something, which is exponential for a man. Like that's way too high for a man. And he called me and he said, I don't understand. I ran this guy's just – I did a quick blood look at him. He's 300, but he has no symptoms. He's super fit, buff, no belly, no man boobs, you know, no depression, no erectile issues. What do you think it is? I said, call the lab. I said, call the lab. I, I suspect there was some cross-contamination. Sure enough, he called the lab. The blood, It was a blood lab. And they went, oh, yeah, oops, oopsies. Um, that was done on immunoassay, and that batch, you know, we had some issues with. So let's switch it. Let's let's switch it and run it to the more sensitive um, machine called a, a mass spec. And then um, – and, and the results came back completely normal. Everything was fine. And so it just goes to show, like, that sensitive, sensitivity and specificity when it comes to hormones, like, that's what we – that's what we want. We don't want cheap and we don't want, you know, less sensitive and less specific if we can avoid it, if we can avoid it. Yeah. And like- so that's what's great about Dutch is that we do use is is best that we can, that we know how, you know, what's sensitive and specific. Mm-hmm. I like that you mentioned this because I'm trying to really drive home some points lately about like testing is not created equal and mm-hmm. testing does not trump uh, symptoms. So when your doctor friend calls and says, this guy does not, this isn't consistent with what the test shows, then start to question the test a little bit, or let's yeah, and, go back and see what's going on. And the same with Dutch, right? Like, like sometimes things happen. Like we've absolutely had practitioners who's called us and said, this doesn't really match. This doesn't make sense. I'm like, okay, no problem. Hold on. Let me go back to the lab. Let me have them pull it. Let me have them relook at, um, of, you know, the data and, and let's see if it was on our end or if there's something else going on. Because I mean, 
it's a like it's a lab. Mm-hmm. It's right. a lab. And so no matter what, and, and I agree with you, I tell people if you're going to use a lab, then you want to make sure you choose the same kind of test every time. So whether even if it's a blood test, if you run a blood test and you run, you choose to run immunoassay, then run it every time when you're comparing apples to apples. So if your patient Jane Doe, you want to check her progesterone today in November and then three months from now, don't switch to mass spec because you may get, you may be very confused. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, either start with, with the sensitivity one now and do it again three months or, you know, right. just be aware, you're, you know, cause then what happens is they call us and they go, the, you know, these levels don't, these levels don't match. I'm like, I know yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not the same. It's not apples to apples. Yeah. Not the same reference ranges, not even really the same marker. So exactly. Cool. So stress on this podcast is really a synonym for inflammation. Let's talk about how cortisol helps or hurts inflammation and how you see that in hormone results. Oh my gosh. All the time, especially what's called the cortisol awakening response, which is that initial, in the first 30 minutes of you opening your eyes, waking up in the morning, it's that burst of cortisol. That's normal. It's, it's not an, it's not necessarily a stress response. It's not a fight or flight response. It's an alert response. It's like, okay, let's get you from conscious. Your, your eyes are open into alert in about 20 to 30 minutes. Now, not everyone feels that way. Some people tell me, I need two cups of coffee in about two hours, and then I feel alert. I'm like, well, your response is not that great. Mm-hmm. But what that, what that response does help with is lower inflammation in the morning. Cortisol is anti-inflammatory to a point. And so it's like, all right, we're going to lower your, your inflammation in the morning so that you can get moving and get going and you know forage for food and fight things if you need to and and really keep inflammation under control. And that's just in the morning. But in general, like let's say you get the flu or the person next to you is sneezing and snotting everywhere, your cortisol will increase to help, or excuse me, your, your immune system will increase, right, to help fight. But then there's, there has to be a cutoff switch. There has to be a stop valve once everything is done. And cortisol helps to do that. Cortisol helps to put the lid on inflammation to be like, okay, guys, like we killed the bug, right? She's not going to get the flu now. Like we saved her. So let's, let's, let's end this process. So it can be very anti-inflammatory. Mm-hmm. Now, on the flip side, if you are chronically inflamed, if you are chronically exposed to something like mold, you know, mycotoxin, stuff like that, if you have a virus that you don't know about, or maybe you do when you're trying to fight it, you have lots of gut issues, you routinely eat dairy and you know that you shouldn't, um, you routinely don't get enough sleep and you have a lot of stress in your life and you don't like your job and, you know, um, you you get a terrible text message that day on top of everything else, cortisol will routinely be up because it's constantly trying to manage the situation. And then as cortisol goes up, it can actually be quite damaging to everything. It can be to everything. (laughs) High cortisol can be really damaging over time. And it doesn't, that's why we need to be so focused on, just as you said, like reducing inflammation, addressing inflammation and being less stressed so we don't have that damaging effect of cortisol all the time. Yeah. So when we look at this, let's sit, pretend on a Dutch test, the cortisol is on kind of a fan or a dial. And I, I mean, just to visualize as you're listening to this driving down the car, down, down, down the road, look at your speedometer or something. It's on a dial that looks like that. So it can be kind of in the middle, high and low. So if we're having some chronic stress, it might be high, but then also it can get burned out. So we can talk about that in a moment, but just to talk mm-hmm. about some ways it affects other markers, it can also what deplete DHEA and testosterone. Can you talk about that a little bit? So actually, it'll raise DHEA initially. So DHEA is actually quite protective against cortisol damage um, 
in the brain uh, over time. Um, and then it can, but it, what it can do is it can reduce the ability of your body to put the S on DHEA. So maybe you've gotten your DHEA S tested in blood work or on saliva or in urine and you're like, oh, it's low. I must need DHEA. Well, actually you may just not be able to get the S on. So it's moving down other pathways, which we can show you on the Dutch test. That high cortisol can affect the way that you ovulate and make progesterone. And so you may see that you have low progesterone levels on a Dutch test. Your high cortisol and inflammation will affect the way your estrogen goes through detoxification. So your estrogen may actually be going down a pathway you don't want, maybe a more carcinogenic pathway, maybe a pathway that we call proliferative. It makes things grow. So like it makes women's breasts get bigger and tender at PMS time. It makes their periods heavier and clottier. Um, and so cortisol can do a lot. Mm-hmm. Okay. We talked about DHEA and DHES. Um, I think that's your favorite hormone, isn't it? It is my favorite hormone. It's so moment tell anyway. us what it is. <laughs> tell us a little bit more about what it is, where it's produced, um, and why we should care about that. Because it's not one that people hear about a lot. I know. And, it, and well, you hear about it a lot in like the sort of like men's health hormones because everyone assume, associates it as an androgen. Like, oh, DHEA and testosterone. Like, men need that. Women, we need it too. DHEA is primarily made in our adrenal glands. It's it's made out of the, one of the layers in the adrenal gland. And it's really effective at helping um, us fight against stress. It's really effective at protecting our brain against cortisol. It raises something in our brain called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which is really good for how we lay down the pathways in our brain, how we reduce inflammation, how we, you know, cleared... Um, you know, bad stuff that gets up in our brain, how we repair and heal in our brain. It increases a hormone in, called acetylcholine, or excuse me, a neurotransmitter called acetylcholine, which is, I think, my favorite neurotransmitter. But acetylcholine, what I, what I tell people, just in a simple analogy, acetylcholine is a really, really big neurotransmitter um, for our nervous system, but it's really helpful at helping us, like, connect the dots. I tell people they're like, it's like kind of like bike messengers. You know, when you, when you increase your acetylcholine, then the bike messengers get to where they need to go faster. There's more of them. And so your brain turns on and you have less brain fog for a lot of people. And so with DHEA, it's, you, you get all these great benefits on top of the fact that it makes estrogen on top of the fact that it's helpful for vaginal health. It helps with, you know, like dry, painful sex. Um, you could be depleted in estrogen. You could be depleted in DHEA. Helps with energy. It helps with mood. It helps us go through puberty. So it's a really good hormone. And does it decrease as we get older? It does. It does. Sadly, yep. In men and women, it does decrease as we get over Mm -hmm. or older. Mm -hmm. So it's really helpful. And if people hear that, they might want to just go out and take DHEA. Don't do Um, that. (laughs) So then, what happens if people do that and then they get too much? Yeah, absolutely. So if they get too much, or if they're going down a pathway, what's known as the five alpha pathway, which we test on Dutch test, that's the pathway where you get acne, especially along your jawline, um, hair growth in places you don't want women, male pattern baldness for men and women, women who are getting that receding hairline look, um, it can increase anger and irritation. And I'm sure a lot of people who are listening have taken DHEA before, maybe they've taken too much and they're like, oh yeah, I made my face break out. It made me really irritated. I'm not doing that again. You probably just push the five alpha pathway too much, and there's there's also ways we can um, help get you like move you off that pathway or, or reduce that pathway. And it's also important to know that like the doses for women of DHEA are significantly smaller than the doses for men. What happens is a lot of women go to the store and they're like, oh, look at this, 50 milligrams of DHEA, mm-hmm. and they buy it. 
And that's man-sized dose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they have loads of acne. And I'm like, yeah, you should have probably maybe looked at more like five milligrams as opposed to 50. Mm -hmm. And it changes for age too in women, obviously. It does change for age, except I am at the moment, based on what I'm reading, in the, I'm um, sort of in the camp that uh, I feel like even menopausal women, you know, even as women get older, I still want them to have pretty healthy levels of DHEA because I think it's that good in the body. Mm -hmm. Cool. So you were talking about cortisol awakening response and how if you don't have a good cortisol awakening response, you are going to feel groggy in the morning. So first off, I want to talk about the different ways that we look at that through testing, because typically um, you have you have a couple ways you look at that with Dutch. You're using saliva through a cortisol awakening response, but you're also looking at a cortisol pattern on uh, a different Dutch, like on the Dutch complete, which gives you urine. What's the difference between the saliva and the urine patterns that you're seeing in cortisol there? Definitely. So the urine pattern is more like a broad sweeping pattern. So it's more, you do it in the morning, and that one you'll urinate on a piece of filter paper. So it's very easy. You just urinate a piece of filter paper in the morning. You'll do it again two hours later. You'll do it again um, around dinner, and then lastly before bed. And so you get this sweeping four-point look of your day uh, to see if you go up and then come back down again, which is really helpful you know, for, again, energy, mid-afternoon crashes. I have insomnia. I can't fall asleep. I can't stay asleep. It's great for that. Then what what we did is we added in the cortisol awakening response and it has to be done first thing in the morning. It's three collections within an, within, um, 30 minutes of each other. So it's done on waking as soon as you wake up, open eyes, open up then 30 minutes and then 30 minutes after that. Now, the reason we had to do cortisol was because with urine, well, first of all, most people probably can't urinate three times in an hour. Maybe I can, but really what you need is what the cortisol is in the moment. And when you are collecting your urine, the cortisol has been made, used, sent to the bladder, right? And then, or sent to the kidney, sent to the bladder, and then comes out. And nobody wants to get their blood drawn three times um, in, you know, in an hour. And so what we do is we use cotton swabs, essentially. They're called salivates. And basically, it's just to make the collection super easy, and it's well-researched. And so we do one swab. You just pop it in your mouth when your eyes open up in the morning, get it wet, put it back in the tube. 30 minutes later, do it again, and 30 minutes later, do it again. Now, we still want to see your pattern through the day, so you'll continue to do the swab around dinner and before bed because we still want to address if you get that afternoon crash and if you can't fall asleep or if you can't stay asleep. Mm -hmm. So cortisol has a natural rhythm. It should rise in the morning and then kind of go down in the evening. So you want to go to bed. So when you're testing, if someone just does some ask for a cortisol test, right? Like let's just go ask for to test this. If we just do this randomly without kind of accounting for the day, what do we, what's the, what's the issue there? Well, you miss out on the rhythm, right? So let's say you can't sleep and you go get your cortisol tested at 10 in the morning at your doctor's appointment at the lab. And they're like, oh, your cortisol is fine. I don't know why you can't sleep. It's like, well, your cortisol at 10 in the morning is not helpful. I want to know what your cortisol is before you go to bed. Or I want to know what your cortisol is, you know, at 3 in the morning when you wake up. And, and we can test that through uh, saliva or through urine. And the other thing is when you test in the blood, your blood is a combination of what's free and what's bound up. So your hormones are like children. They can't be unattended at any time. So you have these buses that drive your hormones through your through your, through your arteries or through your circulatory system. And so when you get your blood drawn in, let's say the level is 10, what you don't know is if it's nine buses and one free hormone, and it's the free hormone that binds to receptors and does the things, it's the free hormone that's the active one. Or if it's the reverse, maybe you have nine free hormones causing havoc 
and only one bus. Because, but all you know is it's 10, which is not really that helpful because you really want to know how much is free and you really want to know how, about, you know, your total, like how many like buses, but you want to know them as two separate answers so you can put the picture together. Mm-hmm. In short, cortisol short term is anti-inflammatory, but long term becomes inflammatory. Yes. So what about if people are on meds, what kind of meds can people sometimes be on commonly that are going to affect results around test results around cortisol the most common especially this time of year are steroid hormones and when we think of steroids we think oh prednisone prednisone injection steroid injection um no you know they're like no i haven't had that I'm like what about an inhaler do you use a steroid inhaler do you use a steroid nasal spray for your allergies do you use a steroid topical cream for your psoriasis or your eczema and then they're like oh my gosh yes i use an inhaler every day before i exercise or or what have you when i go outside walk the dog and it's cold i have cold induced asthma. So I do my inhaler. So that the steroids will suppress the brain communication down to the adrenal glands, which will suppress your ability to make cortisol. So when people say I have a lot of fatigue, um, you know, I have trouble thinking, I have trouble with motivation. I have a trouble getting going and I find out they're on some sort of steroid. I'm like, Oh, that's the, that's the reason your body's not able to make the cortisol. Now, other big ones, opioid, opioid pain medication, very common after surgery, very common addiction, quite a, um, quite a problem here in the United States and, and in other countries as well. But opioid pain medications will, um, will greatly suppress the brain communication down to the adrenals. And then another big one um, that I heard about through an endocrinologist is Accutane, uh, isotretinoin. So the medication for acne that people did in their teens and 20s can affect the, the hypothalamic cells, the brain cells that then tell the pituitary to tell the adrenals to make cortisol. And I, and the reason I found that out is I had a, um, I was consulting on a case of a person who looks like she had complete shutdown of her adrenal glands. It's called Addison's disease. And the endocrinologist said, no, it's not that, but I can't figure out what it is. And, um, turns out this, this woman was on the acne medication Accutane. The endocrinologist did some research, found out that Accutane can have this effect in some people, took her off of Accutane, waited a couple months, retested her, and her cortisol bounced back to normal. And so since I've told people about that, I've had a number of practitioners say to me, oh my gosh, I took Accutane as a teenager in my 20s, and I absolutely have had hormonal issues ever since then. I had no idea. Yeah. No, and it doesn't affect everybody, and it's not permanent in everybody, but I do like to put the information out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are all tricky medications. So essentially, when whether you're putting topical steroids on your skin, which helps your body shut down inflammation response, essentially, right? Mm-hmm. Like, can we just kind of cut out the middlemen there and say that's essentially what's happening? It's saying yep. stop inflaming right now. Um, we also see that downstream in testing. And so you can feel really just like no energy, like you just Mm -hmm. start to feel lethargic. And so let's say someone uses this short term, how long does it take for them to bounce back? And then what happens if they use it long, these things long term? What, what does that look like? So short term, what they qualify in research as short term is really anything under uh, 30 days. What I would qualify as short term is under more like seven days. Most people who are going to get a short term steroid is usually a seven day prednisone pack or they're going to need their inhaler for a couple days or they're going to, it's allergy season. So they might need their nasal spray for, you know, a week or two. And so then I say, if you're going to do any kind of hormonal cortisol testing, you're going to probably want to wait at least a month, if not two months to make sure that the brain communication back to your um, adrenal glands or even back to your ovaries or back to the testicles is back online. It's going to, it's going to take a little bit. Now for those people who are listening and they're like, Oh man, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I have been on prednisone. 
um, for years and years and years and years and years. Or I have really severe asthma and I have been on a steroid inhaler every single day for years and years and years. And for, never stop. First of all, if you're listening to this, never, ever, ever, ever stop your steroid medication without consulting your doctor. For a lot of you, you have to do some sort of step down weaning effect. If you just stop, you could absolutely have what's called an, an adrenal crash. Mm-hmm. And we would never want you to have that. But understand, if you have been on these steroid medications for a long time, um, then even when you do the step-down effect, it could take you a year or more for your glands, your adrenals, to come back online, um, unfortunately, if you, if you do nothing. If you work with somebody, though, if you work with some sort of holistic or functional practitioner who understands how to get the brain and the adrenals or the brain and the ovaries, the brain and the testicles communicating again, then that time frame can be sped way up. Um, and the other thing is why, 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 why are you, why do you need prednisone for years and years and years? You know, what's, what is at the root cause of your rheumatoid arthritis? What is the root cause of your asthma? What is the root cause of your eczema, your psoriasis requiring you to use this stuff every day and maybe think of it in a different manner. And let's really try to address that. So you don't need to go on these long-term steroids. Mm -hmm. Good point. So if people are on some of these meds, which can be as simple as a steroid nasal spray or a topical Mm -hmm. steroid, which we think about, I mean, those get handed out easily, right? I mean, you can (laughs) buy things over the counter. And so that's going to shut down your body's making its own cortisol because it's going to say, hey, I see that I've got enough coming in. I don't need to make any. So that gets shut down that way. But just really chronic high cortisol or high stress over time could also create that sort of burnout or or depleted cortisol or metabolized cortisol, long-term cortisol as well. So how does a person feel when that's going on? Like, how does that affect their healing? Um, Like, is it hard for someone to heal when they've got that going on? Does that become then the priority? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They're tired. They often report they have a lot of fatigue, right? A lot of um, no motivation, mood issues because they're tired and and, um, really struggling. They're they have problems. They're sick all the time. So as far as healing goes, you know, trying to get over the flu, trying to get over every single cold that their child brings home, or even if they cut themselves, you know, they cut themselves, they scratch themselves, their, you know, dog scratches them and it takes a while for them to heal. They, they, um, even, even something like they break out on their skin, you know, they, they get a, they get a acne or pimple on their skin and it just takes longer to heal. It takes longer to clear up than they they are used to. And we need cortisol to help facilitate all of that. But if you've hit the feedback loop, you've had so much cortisol for so long that now the body goes, you know what, we're going to shut this down. Then it can be a real problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about before it even gets to that burnout level, but just in general, how does cortisol specifically affect what's going on in the digestive tract? That is a really good question. So with cortisol in the digestive tract, for a lot of people, if you are in fight or flight, if you're really stressed out, you can go one of two ways, right? People will often report, I have constipation and um, I struggle with digestion. I have gas, I have bloating, I get heartburn, I have constipation. So we can slow everything way down, mostly because your uh, body is focused elsewhere. You're focused on, focused on trying to get this fight or flight uh, feeling that you've got all the time, all the, all the um, fires that you're trying to put out. Is, is your priority and digestion is not it. On the flip side, somebody who's maybe in an acute stressful situation may feel things speed up. So they may actually say, you know, when I get really stressed out, 
um, when I was going through that divorce, when I was working on that project at work, I was actually having a lot of loose stools. I was having a lot of diarrhea. And either way you look at it, though, you are really affecting your ability to properly absorb nutrients, right, to get the vitamins that you need into your body. And then that in turn causes um, sort of long-term more other global issues. You know, if you're not absorbing your iron, if you're not absorbing your vitamin A, if you're not absorbing, you know, your B vitamins because you either can't digest food or the food you do digest is you're having a lot of diarrhea, then it can be really problematic in that regard. Mm -hmm. I'm a, the way I use it at chest in practice is not necessarily, some people use it right away as the baseline. And then later after they've done a bunch of interventions, I tend to like to just get things going and moving in the right direction in the first place and then look at it. Cause as you know, it can take a little while to collect it properly um, at yeah. the right time. And so that's kind of my thought process. But one of the red flags for cortisol and uh, metabolized cortisol being a mess is that things are not progressing at the speed I would normally like. So this is going a little slower or it just seems like we hit some roadblocks. Then I, then once I get hormone information, which, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it's, I wish we could get it right then, right? That would be really nice. But we have to be patient <laughs> with our bodies and how they cycle. And so what I often find is that, hey, the emergency that the body is trying to deal with right now is just survival. Because when you're burned out, it's like survival mode only. And I'm only going right. to do what I can to survive. And everything else is like not a priority anymore. Right. Yep. Even things like ovulation, right? We talked about digestion, but even mm -hmm. like ovulation. Absolutely. So women who are struggling with, you know, pretty bad PMS-like symptoms, um, heavy periods, what have you, fertility, absolutely. And you know that you're burning the candle at both ends and putting fires out all the time. You know, the, the body's like, look, I have to divert resources and mm -hmm. ovulation is not it. We are trying to survive right now. Mm -hmm, totally. How about um, strenuous exercise? How does that affect cortisol as well? I don't think we mentioned that. It does. Absolutely. Quite a bit. Yeah. Anything strenuous exercise over time, um, can lead to that feedback loop where you can actually have a down regulation or a low level of cortisol being put out. Because again, if the body perceives that you're running from the tiger all the time, your cortisol may initially go up and then eventually it goes down because you sort of burn yourself out. Mm -hmm. um, and you had mentioned some constipation, reflux, et cetera. And one of the other things that can tax cortisol or what's going on in the adrenals, because cortisol uh, is produced by adrenal glands, which sit on top of the kidneys as we want to just step back and look at like, okay, where's this coming from in our body? Um, bacterial imbalances, which are a huge thing, can further exacerbate or tax cortisol as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Any kind of infection, inflammation, no matter where, if it's in the gut, on the skin, you know, in the lungs and the sinuses. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let's switch gears to making improvements because now that we are seeing this, we're like, oh, this is a problem, right? And everyone's got <laughs> stress, so that sucks. Um, so let's go back to that cortisol awakening response. People often feel this way, like I'm groggy, I need coffee to get out of bed. What are, but there's a lot of really simple lifestyle things that you can do to improve cortisol awakening response. So talk to us about so some simple. things that people do. for Light, light is my favorite. It's the, it's the easiest free or cheapest thing that you can do. So full spectrum light. So if you live in an area that actually gets sun, sun, uh, sunlight, uh, which is maybe not where you live or I live right now, but if you live in an area and you wake up in the morning, the first thing you should do is open up your curtains, open up your curtains and get some full spectrum light in or go outside for five, 10, 15 minutes and just get some brightness as you are enjoying your, your yard, your property, you know, whatever you have, the view around you. And that light will help to increase, improve your cortisol awakening response, which is very driven from the light dark cycle. So if we start out our day with bright light, 
and we end our day with dimmer or dark light or more reddish orange light, then we help to reset our circadian rhythm. Now, if you live in a place where you're like, well, I get up at five in the morning and it's still dark out, or you live where I live in Portland, Oregon, where it is currently gray and raining, then you can absolutely just go on Amazon and buy a full spectrum light box or light bulb or um, a full spectrum alarm clock that wakes you up through uh, full spectrum or broad spectrum light and have it on. Have it on about a foot or two away from you while you are making your coffee coffee, get up in the morning, turn it on your bedside table, use it when you are, you know, in the bathroom, putting on makeup, set it next to your computer. If you're, you know, checking emails first thing and get that full bright sunlight type exposure. And it can really make a difference And training your brain. We get up in the morning and then on the flip side, we go down at night when it's darker. Mm-hmm. Now we can't out supplement lifestyle by any regard. So if we're not sleeping yep. well and stress <laughs> is really high, I mean, you have to find ways that you can control those. Like, I mean, it really takes an inventory and sitting down and working on that because you can't just, I mean, if, if you choose to do that, like things will not get better. Right. And your body will continue being like, well, right. I'm going to continue working in, um, survival mode. So, but what are some things that are safe for anyone to be doing besides looking at the light? Um, or would you go to adaptogens? Are there other things that you think really support this? I, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So adaptogens are, um, even vitamins that are supportive for the adrenal glands. So adaptogens, adaptogens are herbs that really work on the whole system. We call them sort of adrenal supportive herbs, but they do work on the immune system. They do work on digestion. They do work on the nervous system. And so they're, the most common one everyone probably has heard about is something called ashwagandha. Ashwagandha is an Ayurvedic or Indian herb um, that's generally considered pretty safe. It's um, safe with hypothyroidism. Um, it is not safe, though, with hyperthyroidism, so a fast thyroid. you got to be careful there. But that's probably one of the most common ones we see. Other ones are known as rhodiola, um, eleutherococcus. Holy basil is probably my absolute favorite. Holy basil is also known as Tulsi, T-U-L-S-I. And what I really like about that one is that you can find it as a tea, an organic tea blend, all over in tons of grocery stores. I personally drink that every day. I tend to drink it in the evening um, before bed. is more of a like calming adaptogen. And it's just really helpful when you feel in survival mode, burning the candle at both ends, and you're exhausted. It can just be very... Um, nutritive in that regard. Now, the other helpful thing, vitamin C, your adrenal glands, your HPA access uses a lot of vitamin C. Same with B vitamins, your B12, your B5, your B6, all very important. So for those people who are maybe not taking supplements, or maybe you're not taking a very good quality supplement, you know, like evaluate your B vitamins and consider taking 250 or 500 milligrams of vitamin C a day and, and it consistently and see if that helps make a difference. Which is a small dose. I mean, it's not super small, but it's like not a giant dose, 250 to 500 yeah. milligrams of vitamin C. Well, research is showing that, I mean, the high dose, the body, the, the intestines can really only absorb about 250 milligrams of vitamin C at a time. So even if somebody's doing, they want to do 1,000 or 2,000 milligrams of vitamin C. For example, if they're sick or in a really stressful time, they I still advise that they break it up. Don't, don't just slam it in in the morning because they're not really going to absorb all of that vitamin C. Well, all this talk about vitamin C and the adrenals makes me think about what's the physiological mechanism that happens when someone has a lot of stress and then immediately after they get ill, they get sick. What's going on with the immune system? (laughs) 
I feel exactly. And I think the most common is definitely, you know, like I feel at Christmas time or Thanksgiving, you know, all the college kids come home and they get out of finals and they come home and they immediately get sick or people have big projects at work and the project ends and you've just been in fight or flight, fight or flight, flight or flight. Your cortisol has been high, your adrenaline has been high and then it stops. And so your body comes to a screeching halt, your cortisol and your adrenaline go down and now you've lost that anti-inflammatory property and the immune system can not handle whatever, you know, flu bug or, or thing that's been floating around. And as a result, you get sick because of it, because of it. So the high, like we said in the beginning, that high cortisol can be very protective, but as it goes down, then you struggle to heal or you can become sick more often. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. I love holy basil or Tulsi as well. And another strategy for getting this in, because sometimes it feels a little overwhelming is what is something you're already doing in the day? Like, are you, is a smoothie part of your day? Cause you can brew tea appropriately and use that for the liquid in your smoothie. You can get herbs in that way as well, which I think is a really gentle cool suggestion for people to like brew it up, keep it in the fridge and then be able to just like ready to go on demand. And that way you're getting in really just like food as medicine stuff. Absolutely. And a lot of these herbs are come as in taste good and come as powdered, you know, like maca can come powdered and some of the really good mushrooms, you know, cordyceps and reishi mushrooms, which are wonderful for immune system and nervous system. And you know, the, uh, the HPA adrenal system, they can come powdered. And I tell people just mix them in your smoothie. Just just go that way. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I can't help but think of kids on steroids because I work with these kiddos with eczema. And mm-hmm. um, I think about the possible rebound effect there. Now, we don't really measure. I mean, I have never measured hormones in any of my children. I don't think that there's no. reference mm-hmm. ranges there because they're no, all different ages. So, I mean, that's just not something that's going to be done anyway. But we do know, because I've been in the research a lot lately, we do know that wrapping the skin, which is something times done in eczema, with steroids underneath is definitely contraindicated for adrenals. That makes perfect sense because they're really mm-hmm. hyper-absorbing it. Kids have a... Um, uh, a, a surface area to body mass that's um, different than adults. So they just absorb things a lot at a higher rate anyway. And I just think about like, man, I wonder what our drown- downstream effects are here because sometimes there's something called topical steroid withdrawal where people really have like crazy, crazy bad stuff going on when they try to come off mm-hmm. of steroids. And I just think about how do we support them? But I think we kind of just answered that a little bit. There's a lot of food as medicine things. And beyond that, I, I don't know the answers um, to that, but I'm just kind of musing out loud like, oh, this makes me sad. And it's a challenging group for sure. Oh, absolutely. And especially with kids, because they're so, their systems are still developing. Mm-hmm. And so they're so impressionable and it puts them more at risk for maybe developing autoimmune or maybe developing thyroid issues or maybe developing, you know, um, fertility issues, which you don't think about maybe a four-year-old or a two-year-old or a six-year-old. But if you're, you, it's potentially that you could be, they could be setting themselves up for something like that. And if we can do all that we can do to help them so they don't have to be on all these steroids, then all of them are better for their long-term, long, long-term health yeah, as opposed to an adult, right? An adult who comes in at 45 who says, okay, now I feel hormonal and my eczema's back. It's like, okay, um, you, we can, it's a little different than a four-year-old or two-year-old or six-month-old. Yeah. And the guidelines for steroids is that they're not supposed to be used long-term, but sometimes they do get used long-term or people get lost to follow-up, which is a common thing. Yes. Gosh, I hear that all the time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I think as providers and as parents and just being aware, we do need to be a little more vigilant about that. So anyway, just thought thinking out loud. Um, 
So, Carrie, what do you do personally to monitor your cortisol, your all your stress response? What are some of your favorite <laughs> methods? I mean, we, I think we talked about you said, oh, I drink Tulsi and holy basil every night. But what are some things you like to do otherwise? Um, well, perks of the job, I do get to do Dutch testing quite a bit on myself so I can follow up what's going on. Um, but I do have an aura ring, um, the, it, which is spelled O-U-R-A. So some people have like the Fitbit watch or something like that. I've never actually had a watch. I'm not a watch person, but I do, I am a ring person. So I use the aura ring, which basically is a tracker. So I wear it, uh, 24 hours a day, just like you might wear a watch and it tracks my heart rate variability my sleep cycles, um, how well I'm sleeping, my steps in a day. And it really helps me stay accountable to me because it's like me playing my own video game against me on what my stress and what my lifestyle choices are doing to my sleep, to my stress response, um, to my temperature, to my heart rate and things like that. And I love it because it's immediate feedback. When I sync it uh, to my phone, I can see what I did the day before, whether I chose to, um, you know, like stop eating dinner at five or have a glass of wine or, you know, walk 15,000 steps. Like how does that all affect my body as a whole? And then I can track it. Mm-hmm. And it yells at you, right? So it like totally if you have wine, it yells at me. Or if you're not getting sleep, it'll be like, Hey, yes. try this instead. <laughs> yes. Today. I think at Dutch Fest I read, cause I had, of course, uh, the conference started, um, at the ungodly hour of seven in the morning. So I had to be there at five 30 in the morning. And when I woke up, my, my aura ring gave me this thing. I, I totally got yelled at. I mean, it was like, it seems like you've been really stressed lately. You should, you know, you should take today off and relax. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> I've been pushing too hard, hard lately. Like you need to try something different. I'm like, okay, ordering. <laughs> yeah, I thrive on accountability. So you talked me into getting one at that moment because I'm like, what better? I mean, what better than someone who's actually measuring? And I love how we were talking off air about just little experiments that you've tried to try to see like how does it affect it the next day, and that's that's fun because awareness is really at the cusp or at the top or at the like that that drives how we improve. Absolutely. Bio-individuality, right? Precision medicine is what everybody is really talking about, whether it's from um, the practice all the way up into research and, and pharmacology, chemotherapy treatment. You know, everyone's like, just because you have breast cancer doesn't mean all chemotherapy works. And it's the same for um, just, you know, just because you take ashwagandha doesn't mean it's going to work for everybody. But if we ch- can track it for you as a person and get the feedback of, Yes, when I drink holy basil tea at night before bed, my deep sleep goes up. Okay, I'm going to keep doing that because deep sleep is where all the repair happens. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. And I like that. And I like that, like I said earlier, I'm only, um, well, I, I mean, I, I kind of call it like a video game. I'm the only one here. Like, it's not a coach. It's not a person I can fire. You know, like when I get the feedback from Aura Ring, it's not like I can be like, you know what? That was rude. I, you're fired. Because it's me. I'm, it's like I'm playing against me. I have to get mad at myself. I did it to me. I'm the one that sleep was poor. I'm the one that, you know, my temperature went up or my, you know, heart rate variability plummeted. I did something and then I either have to accept it like, yep, totally did it on purpose. It was worth it or I need to figure it out. Yeah. So for those people that are wondering or worried about kind of wireless signals going back and forth, it only syncs when you tell it to sync, correct? You can And you can keep it in um, airplane mode. So I keep it in airplane mode when I sleep. And then um, when I sync it in the morning uh, to my phone, it has a little docking station that you put on. Then it pulls it out of airplane mode, syncs it with the phone, you download all the data, and then it charges. And so it's really nice. So when people say, oh, I don't really want that. Yeah, I don't want that EMF on my hand all day long. I'm like, oh, no, you can keep it in airplane mode. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, if you had to give people 
your gut reaction, like, oh my gosh, I think I've been overdoing it for a long time. And I think this is explained, like this opened my eyes to what's going on inside of me and has, uh, you know, inspired me to do better. What do you tell them? Like, what's something they can start doing today to help improve their stress response? <laughs> Um, well, I say the same two things every time. One we've already talked about, which is get sunlight in the morning and get darkness at night. So get off your phone, get off your computer, or at least use the um, amber colored blue light blocking glasses. Because just if you follow a natural circadian rhythm, it makes all the world. And I'm pretty convinced if you, sleep will fix greater than 50% of health problems. But the second thing I always recommend is to increase your oxytocin, which is your love and bonding hormone. That's a very, very quick way to reduce the fight or flight feeling, reduce the, you know, feeling that you're burning the candle at both ends. So pet a dog, pet a nice dog and, or, you know, make sure you're not allergic to dogs. And if your cat is nice and gives you unconditional love back, then pet your cat instead. That's fine too. But when you pet an animal and they give you that unconditional love, you immediately, immediately, immediately raise your oxytocin that throws you right into parasympathetic the rest um, and digest it pulls you out of the you know putting out the fire feeling and do that even just for a couple minutes a day it's it's as effective as I think as effective as like meditation or breathing or journaling or what have you so I love it if, you have, if you're listening and you have an animal go pet your animal and people will ask me well can I hug my spouse or can I hug my kids I'm like yeah absolutely but th sometimes they're distracted and sometimes it's not unconditional and sometimes they're like "Ew, mom stop Whereas, you know, your animal is usually all about it. Yeah. You basically just explain the science of why I was enjoying going to see my chickens every day because like, they <laughs> run up to me with such glee. My children don't really do that. So like, right. <laughs> I walk outside and the chickens run up to me and I was like, I just enjoy that. Like, it's just so funny to yes. me. And I'm obviously increasing my oxytocin or I'll go outside between clients and pick up a chicken and it doesn't try to flap and get away because it's like, oh, it's just see you again. And so yeah. anyway, it's kind of a comic. My whole Instagram stories are just like what the chickens are doing today. So anyway, that mine is, is my stress the dog. Mine is my dog, Hank. Hank has his own Instagram account because he brings me the most joy. I mean, my husband and kid are great, but <laughs> they, right. sometimes they don't want to be around me and sometimes I don't want to be around them. So I'm like, well, there goes my oxytocin. I'll pet the dog. Yeah. <laughs> good stuff. Well, you are so good at cranking in lots of awesome information into such a short time. Uh, I kept looking at the clock and I was like, Oh, I mean, this was so good in just 17 minutes. And here we are. So, <laughs> so um, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about stress response. I think it's such a great topic applicable to everyone and their dog, uh, yes. pun intended. And hopefully we'll have you back again soon. I would be honored. I'd love it. Thank you so much. Thank you. One of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life, and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock.